Welcome back to Advent Next, everybody. Uh, this week, we are gearing up for Black History Month, and I am going to bring on guests and speakers who can really shed some light on the topic. I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, great Black theologians, and this whole concept of Black theology is something that's been very much not explored. Um, it may be in the mainstream uh, within evangelical churches and within Adventism in particular. And so I just wanted to take the time to kind of set the stage and really talk a little bit about black theology and black liberation theology and what that is all about. And so I just want you guys to stay tuned. We're going to drop that intro. All right, so black history and the black experience is something that we're going to be exploring throughout the year, but particularly this month, I want to honor the, the heritage and the legacy of African-Americans who have made contributions to Christianity and to society at large. So kind of getting right into it, you know, the father of black theology is a guy named James Cone, and he began to develop this theology. Uh, this is back in the 60s and the civil rights movement is happening. And Malcolm X said something particular about Christianity being the white man's religion. And James Cone wrote a book called Black Theology and Black Power because he wanted to give a different perspective and a way that African Americans could take ownership of their Christianity and also to really kind of call out some of the misconceptions that have happened, particularly in America, of anglicizing Jesus and anglicizing Christianity in a way where racism has been a part of kind of the the undertones of what Christianity really is. And sometimes, you know, we've had some really great guests come on the show. And I think one thing that I really particularly appreciated is that sometimes, you know, as as white theologians, they don't recognize that white is a color. And with that comes a sense of privilege, but not just privilege. And what I mean by that, I know that's a very touchy word. And so let me just back up really quick because I know some of you will be tracking with me and some of you will not be tracking with me. James Cone, Black Theology and Black Power, that might be the first time that you've ever heard of these books and that's okay. And, and I'm by no means, I'm an expert, but I want to, I, I really want to appeal to those who really don't have any type of understanding of, of you know, why this might be important and really bring certain issues to light because Within kind of white Christianity, there is a sense that when I say privilege, meaning that they don't have to uh, take their race into consideration when they're reading the text. You know, there's something where people can say, oh, I'm just reading the text very plainly. I don't have a lens. And that's never the case, right? We all bring our own life experiences, whether it's our gender, our race, or sexuality, we are bringing them to the text. And just to be aware that white is a color... (laughs) And with that comes with a certain amount of ability to maybe focus on different parts of theology rather than certain parts of theology that would really speak to the African-American experience. And so going back, James Cone was somebody who wanted to speak to that experience and saying that Christianity should be a liberating force, right? That you see throughout the Bible, God liberating the oppressed. He liberates the children of Israel out of Egypt 
Um, he liberates Joseph out of prison, out of the, his brother's hands, and into the prominent place within Egypt. There's this continual picture of taking somebody who is oppressed, taking somebody who has very little, and justice is about meeting out equality and making restoration for the types of oppression that that person has experienced. And so when looking at the scriptures, you know, there is a specific uh, uh, tale that James Cone is trying to take when he says we need to look at the scriptures as primarily a liberating power. And so I want to get into some of his quotes to really give you a picture of who he is, as well as some of the books that he's written. And just to kind of give you a little background, so James Cone, you know, um, he first addressed this theology when Malcolm X uh, had made the statement that Christianity is a white man's religion. And so wanting to provide ownership for his community to that they could have a stake in Christianity, that this was not solely a pre- an oppressing power, but, but contrary to that, Christianity is about liberation and freedom. And in fact, making the comparison even that Jesus, who came to this world as an immigrant of, of a teenage mother, of someone who was poor and somebody who was looked upon as an outsider. He came from Galilee. You know, he was very much like this, the, the other, right? He was the other. And that if he were to come in this context, he very much, well, might have come as a black man. And because he represented the class of people who were the most oppressed. And by taking that type of, you know, um, perspective at the gospel to say, you know, let's see what Jesus actually stood for and how would that manifest today in our culture? He's making this application and this comparison that Jesus would probably come as a black man. And so how would now the church in North America really respond to that? You know, historically, Christianity, the evangelical church, has been either by their complicity in doing nothing or by their proactive work Um, have institutionalized slavery, and then on top of that, uh, have continued the effects of slavery through segregation and through other racist systemic, both systemic and individual policies that have kept a particular class of people, African Americans, in poverty and in in, in, in a subhuman uh, type category. Now, I'm not speaking across the board for every white person. I'm talking about historically uh, what has been kind of majority culture of evangelicalism and a lot of the remnants we can still see today. So this isn't something that has, you know, erased, it's purely stuck in the past, strictly, uh, strictly historical. That's not the case, right? We see those remnants still with us in present today. And so I want to read some of these quotes because... They've made me think. I want them to make you think. And I want you guys to be excited about engaging with these types of texts and with these types of dialogues because there is a certain call for unity. And what would a unified church across color lines really look like? Right? That we take up the burdens of the oppressed, that we walk side by side one another in our struggles, and that we bond together in brotherly love in the hope and in the calling of Jesus Christ, right? But, you know, we also have to be realistic. We have to take the world for what it is and really address 
the wrongs that are present. And if, there, if you're somebody who, for example, that's not a part of your regular life, you don't deal with racism on a regular basis, then you are lucky, right? You are a part of the privileged class. And as a part of that, you know, if you do attend church, um, I think that it is our obligation to be able to start placing our shoulders um, under the yoke that is weighing down and crushing our brothers, however that may form, right? So here are a couple quotes that I wanted to to bring out, and it says, to sing about freedom and pray for its coming is not enough. Freedom must be actualized in history by oppressed people who accept the intellectual challenge to analyze the world for the purpose of changing it. And so he's talking about that sometimes we can um, over-spiritualize the gospel. We can make the gospel a futuristic experience that justice will be meted out in heaven alone. And this is kind of a radical shift of saying, no, justice should be meted out now. In fact, historically, God's call upon his people to provide justice was not about, you know, share with them a tale of future restitution. (laughs) It was, no, fix the wrong now. And if you don't, I'm going to come down and I'm going to cause a lot of trouble, right? Like that's historically, when we look at the Old Testament and the Bible, that's, that's God's call to his people. And I think that, you know, there are different camps, dispensational camps that say we're, we're in a new dispensation. God is doing something very different. And I just want to, to point out, like, the same Jesus of the Old Testament is the same Jesus of the New Testament and is the same Jesus that will be with us at the second coming, right? Where he comes back as an avenger, you know, uh, taking vengeance on his enemies. Like, that's a very scary picture of who Jesus is that I often don't like to think about, right? And the Jesus who was also here providing a message of love and comfort and, and telling us how to overcome sin by ridding our hearts of bitterness and unforgiveness. These are things that are also very true, but we also have to be very careful about, you know, mismatching something, right? By saying, you know, by forcing people to forgive when really what in this particular situation, a pursuit of justice and restitution would be the proper course of action. So here are some quotes from his book, Black Theology and Black Power. Now, again, he is the father of black liberation theology. Uh, this book was written in 1969. Now, I'm by no means an expert. I hope to find an expert to bring on um, to particularly talk about this topic. I wish James Cone himself could come, but he has passed. And so uh, I will do my best to kind of bring you through some quotes and bring you through some kind of overarching ideologies that are trying to be expressed within this particular text. And even if you don't agree with everything that this person says, I think it's a historical piece of work that should be read, that should be wrestled with, that should be brought into consideration of present ministry and the way that we go about and thinking about how we present theology and the gospel. So it says, um, in 1969, I still regard Jesus Christ today as the chief focus of my perspective on God, but not to the exclusion of other religious perspectives. So he's saying there's wisdom to be gained in other places. So just hold on. God's reality is not bound by one manifestation of the divine in Jesus, but can be found wherever people are being empowered to fight for freedom. 
life-giving power for the poor and the oppressed is the primary criterion that we must use to judge the adequacy of our theology, not abstract concepts. And so, you know, even if you are a theologian, and he's not saying that he does not believe in Jesus Christ or that's not the primary focus of his life, but he's saying that there's wisdom to be gained in other places. In fact, God is manifesting himself in other cultures and other situations where there are oppressed people who are struggling for freedom because God, the ontological reality of who he is, is a God of liberation, right? He is liberating humanity from sin, but he is also interested in the here and now liberation, right? Side note. This is something I want to do further research on. I want to bring on a guest who can possibly talk more in depth about the freedom of the will. Now, this is particularly interesting to me because, you know, we see what happened a few weeks ago on Capitol Hill. We see the riots that happened. People were manipulated into believing a false narrative of reality and then acting upon that reality. And this type of manipulation is basically in bondage, bonding, imprisoning, enslaving the will. Because I believe that, you know, you can only be truly free if you are in full control of your will, right? But if you don't have the right information, how are you able to act with integrity or with knowledge, right? If you don't, um, if you're in, living in fear of somebody who is a powerful figurehead, how are you able to operate and exercise in the freedom of your will? You're moving in fear. And so when we even look at like how God interacts with humanity, it really is this dynamic, this relationship of power relating to people who have no power, right? That God is someone who, you know, in a nanosecond could end our lives. Something, somebody who knows everything, is all capable, and yet the care that he takes not to impinge upon our will. He doesn't use hypnosis, right? He doesn't use all of the advantages that he could to manipulate us to be able to do what he wants. And I think that would answer a lot of questions when it comes to like the great controversy. Why does God not act in specific situations? Why does he allow certain sufferings to happen? Why does he allow X, Y, and Z to happen? When it comes to like the freedom of the will is I think one of the most, you know, delicate things that God is constantly, like the purity of that. It's like an innocence he doesn't want to touch. Like, and that's, in fact, he's contractually bound, right? Because if he was to use his power in any way to manipulate human choice, then, you know, and this is not everyone's theology. I get it. But from, from, from my perspective, from an Adventist perspective of the great controversy where, you know, Satan has made an accusation against God, that God is unjust, that we don't really need his law to live by, and that, you know, God really is the, the tyrant criminal that we should all be suspicious of and not obey. And in that narrative, you know, if God were to exercise his power in a form of manipulation of humanity, Satan's argument would be one, right? See, 
you know, he is an abusive power. He's an abuser. Only somebody who uses their abuse, their power for their advantage and their gain to be able to uh, have their particular desired outcome, they're an abuser. God's an abuser. Great controversy over, right? And so this is such a, a pure ideal that God is trying to preserve all the time. Freedom of the will. And the exact opposite of that is slavery. This is why it is so heinous to God, because it is now people are not able to act according to their conscience. Their conscience is abused in a way where they cannot even act in the desire of their own volition and what they believe is right. And without having to face some dire consequence, some awful, horrible death. And so I think I'm, I'm very, very convinced that slavery is one of the most, is the greatest evil that there is. And there are, there are various degrees of slavery, right? There's human trafficking that's happening nowadays on an economic level, right? Where we exploit people's economic vulnerability and companies exploit a, a, a people group's economic vulnerability in order to get their, get their way, Right? And they essentially have to become slaves to the desires of the company and to their bosses and to whomever because they don't have a choice. You know, they, they absolutely need this job. Or sometimes people are just taken as slaves. You know, they're brought to places and separated from their family and from help and are told to work until they can pay off their debt. And it's modern slavery still happening today in different parts of the world. And so this is, you know, one of the greatest evils uh, uh, in God's mind. And so when we're looking at, you know, slavery and the effects of slavery and the fact that James Cohen particularly is saying is, is, is focusing on the empowerment of those who have been slaves for 400 years and equating the gospel to a, to a liberating force that happens in the here and now not just in the afterlife. This is a very important piece of theology that I think American Christianity could really benefit from, right? To see this, the, the justice of it. And we call it, you know, it's called social justice. Sometimes it's used as a slur, right? To say, well, don't get caught up in politics. Social justice isn't, you know, really something that we should be focusing on. We need to be focusing on the refinement of our characters, and the preparation for Christ's coming. But God also says, you know, I was just reading this the other day with my nieces in Luke, I think chapter 11, where he's talking to the Pharisees who are whitewashed tombs, and he says, you know, the, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is full of filth and darkness. But if you give to the poor and do justice, everything will be clean to you. So when we think about how do we refine our characters, how do we prepare for Christ's coming, it is in the work of doing justice, and that they're not entirely separate, the way that we've kind of dissected it in today's society. So anyway, getting back to uh, some of these quotes. So, you know, um, James Cone also grew up in an era of you know, the Black Power Movement, which had to do about, you know, how does, how do African-American communities 
who have been economically marginalized and disenfranchised begin to lift themselves up from slavery and from poverty so that they can have an economic viability in the world. So black power. And, you know, you see this in in Tulsa, Greenwood, Oklahoma, the Black Wall Street, uh, that uh, was basically the massacre of 1921, that this was an establishment that was called the Black Wall Street. You know, you had a lot of black thriving businesses. It was the richest city in America for African-Americans. So it was really a thriving place. And it was devastated because of racism. And, uh, you know, it was bombed out. Fires were set. I think a thousand homes were lost. $32 million in modern day money was lost. Um, upwards of like 300 to 700 people were killed. Even though there are some figures that are lower, those, those figures are contested uh, in modern um, history. And so there's just so much when it comes to like, okay, this was, a, this was an attempt to bring black power to a community and economic power, uh, but it was destroyed, right, through racism. And so this is 1960s now, the civil rights movement, where again, the cry is still being raised of we need to find a way to begin to uh, raise ourselves up out of the, the, the effects, the long-lasting effects of slavery and segregation and racism in this country. So James Cone, a Christian, a pastor, a theologian, is now trying to meld these two. Where does black power and where does Christianity, how do these two work together? And it says, black power in short is an attitude, an inward affirmation of the essential worth of blackness. It means that the black man will not be poisoned by the stereotypes that others have of him, but will affirm from the depth of his soul, quote, get used to me. I'm not getting used to anyone, quote. And if the white man challenges my humanity, I will impose my whole weight as a man on his life and show him that I am not that show good eaten that he persists in imagining. So he's wanting to affirm himself and his identity in a way that breaks free of the stereotypes of this minstrel caricature of who black people were and to stand in the full weight of his humanity and say, I will not bend to your stereotypes. I will not bend to your expectations of me. I will take power to define myself and affirm my humanity and my dignity. And so and there's so much, you know, that we can affirm as Christians about that principle of itself. Another quote he says is, if the church is to remain faithful to its Lord and must make a decisive break with the structure of this society, by launching a vehement attack on the evils of racism in all its forms. It must become prophetic, demanding a radical change in the interlocking structures of this society. So he's doing an actual like prophetic work. He's calling the church at large to stand up and to do something about this and not to allow uh, these types of evils to continue to happen. And I know it can be difficult, right? I think many people are thinking, well, where do I start? You know, where do I begin to, uh, uh, to, to fight racism, right? Jamar Tisby just came out with his newest book, How to Fight Racism. I hope to have him on again soon. Uh, we, we can talk about a little bit about how to fight racism <laughs> and where, where to begin, where we can begin with that. Another quote he says in Black 
theology, and black power. I wanted to speak on behalf of the voiceless black masses in the name of Jesus, whose gospel, I believed, have been greatly distorted by the preaching and theology of white churches. Again, he says, you know, and this is one I hope rings to you, even if you don't agree entirely with maybe how some people might take this statement, but I hope that you can listen to for what it is. It says, we cannot solve ethical questions of the 20th century by looking at what Jesus did in the first. Our choices are not the same as his. Being Christians does not mean following in his steps. So what he's trying to say here is that like there are very different circumstances of the first century and who Jesus was within the context of that society. Even the fact that he was an Israelite put him in a place of some power, even though he was the lowest on the totem pole. But he wasn't a Samaritan. He wasn't a Gentile. He wasn't somebody completely removed from power. But he was, you know, he did have different choices. He had very limiting choices based on his economic and also his eschatological reasons that he was here. So he was here to be the lamb, right? At this point in his ministry, he was coming to die for the sins of the world. And so the choices that he had in this moment of time and how to act were to make sure that he, that he was accomplishing this goal to be a spotless lamb. And the choices available to him and the way that he went about his ministry, sometimes they don't necessarily translate one-to-one for what we're dealing with today. And just because they don't translate one-to-one doesn't mean that there aren't core principles that are guiding our choices, but even the sense of strict passivism. I'm going to say something, and I hope it doesn't step on anybody's toes. (laughs) But this idea of strict passivism, you know, I think is the negation of looking at the multifaceted person that Christ is, right? There's the God of the Old Testament who was not entirely passive. Then you have the God of the New Testament who's entirely passive. And then you have the God who's projected to come at the second coming who was definitely not passive, right? And these are all the same person. And just because he manifests himself in different aspects of who he is at different spaces of time doesn't mean we get to isolate that and say, This is who he is forever, right? The revelation of God is multifaceted. And when we pigeon him into one particular mode, we don't allow him to have the multifaceted approach that he is. For example, the Civil War, you know, the, the fight to end slavery was a violent fight, you know, and... It was a cause that many people joined in because they believed in the principles of not enslaving human beings. Not to say that this speaks for the motive of everybody who fought in the Civil War, but this was the ideals, you know, and not to say that even the main power structures of President Abraham Lincoln, all these people, not even to say that that was their biggest priority, but the people who were fighting, the abolitionist, people who had been kind of behind enemy lines for a very long time saw that this issue had to come to bloodshed. And we ask ourselves, was this the will of God? And I think in some points of time, and please, you know, take me with a grain of salt if you wish, 
But I think at times, you know, liberation will cause for such radicalness. And at that point in time, it did, right? To end something as evil as slavery. So, you know, I think James in this particular uh, passage, he's looking at what are our options for being able to liberate ourselves? And we may not have the same choices that Jesus had, but sometimes it puts us in a very difficult place to know ethically what to do and how to go about this. And I think that that's just something to listen to. I'm not advising anybody to do anything. I'm just saying sometimes the issue of ethics and what to do in the moment is a very difficult one. (laughs) You know, sometimes it's not outlined for us in the perfect package. So this is from his book, um, A Black Theology of Liberation, 1970, a year after his first one, it says, any theology that is indifferent to the theme of liberation is not Christian theology. Again, he equates liberation to the quintessential nature of the gospel. This is, again, kind of what I was just saying, and he sums it up very perfectly in this quote. It says, but there is no perfect guide for discerning God's movement in the world. Contrary to what many conservatives say, the Bible is not a blueprint on this matter. It's a valuable symbol for God's, for, sorry, it's a valuable symbol to point to God's revelation in Jesus, but it is not self-interpreting. We are thus placed in an existential situation of freedom in which the burden is on us to make decisions without a guaranteed ethical guide. So if you want to play semantics and you want to break down some of the things that he said and say, well, I don't agree with this, you can. But I think the thrust of what he's trying to say is that sometimes in life, we do not have a one-to-one blueprint from God about how to act in this particular situation. And we're left in kind of this crisis of existentialism of saying, how do I move forward ethically? And this is something that systems of government have to deal with, you know, how do we deal with crime? How do we deal with poverty? How do we deal with, you know, low-income citizens? And also upon the individual, you'll find yourself in situations and you'll say, how do I ethically go about this? Sometimes the answers are very easy and very simple, and sometimes they're very perplexing. But that's also the nature of life. And I think that if we oversimplify something, we miss the nuances of what it means to really walk in sincerity and in authenticity with God. There's another quote from um, his A Black Theology of Liberation book. It says, There can be no Christian theology that is not identified unreservedly with those who are humiliated and abused. In fact, theology ceases to be a theology of the gospel when it fails to arise out of the community of the oppressed. So the gospel has legs, it walks, it has hands, it does. It's not a static concept of faith for the future, but it has real-world implications for today. And this one I just found very interesting about the medicinal effects of humor. It says, anger and humor are the left and right arm. They complement each other. Anger empowers the poor to declare their uncompromising opposition to oppression, and humor prevents them from being consumed by their fury. 
That is so deep, by the way. Like, I was like, wow. Wow. You know, there is a, a medicine and a just a relief, a, sh- a stress reliever that humor brings, being able to have a perspective upon your own life that keeps you from, from just totally burning up with anger and being furious. He also wrote a book, God of the Oppressed. Again, his theme is God is the God of the Oppressed, and the gospel has very real-world implications. This is 1975. It says, Indeed, our survival and liberation depend upon our recognition of the truth when it is spoken and lived by the people. So if we cannot recognize the truth, then it cannot liberate us from untruth. To know the truth is to appropriate it, for it is not mainly reflection and theory. Truth is divine action, entering our lives and creating the human action of liberation. So purpose of the gospel is to get us to act. A claim that connects the word Christian with the liberation of the poor. I don't know if that is the connection that we have here in America. I mean, this is a very unique concept to American Christianity, right? So American Christianity is very different. Not, you know, it is very different from many Christianities in the world. Other Christianities are shaped by their social, political, economic, ethnic, and cultural backgrounds. There's all these different factors that kind of, you know, um, manifest Christianity in a different way. And he says, if Christianity is not associated with liberating the poor, is it Christianity? It's a good question. The scandal is that the gospel means liberation, that this liberation comes to the poor and that it gives them the strength and the courage to break the conditions of servitude. And he's saying that that reality is scandalous for some. It's scandalous because there is much to be gained by oppressing people for some, right? Economic gains. Slavery was founded on the back of an economic opportunity. And that's still the case today. And for those who are being used to financially bankrupt their owners and their corporate employers, like what happened this week with GameStop, right? I thought that was very interesting. It's very much an act of scandal. The Cross and the Lynching Tree is his last book uh, published in 2011, so much more recently. But basically, it's this concept of, you know, if we are to look at the cross and the lynching tree as one and the same, maybe we could see that the black man who was put on the lynching tree is the same act of what we did to Christ. You know, that, and, and, and if, if it's the same, right? If, if Jesus represents those who are outsiders, who are poor, who are disenfranchised, and in this society he would show up as a black man, and that black man would ultimately end up on a lynching tree, what does that say about how we really treat Christ in this country? What does that say about how Christian we really are? Especially since there were many Christians who participated in lynchings, who would go to church on Sunday and in the afternoon be a part of a lynching, that they didn't see the disassociation there. And he's saying, you know, if you look at that act as the act of crucifying Christ, how Christian really is this nation, right? 
It's a good point. It's a great point. You can agree or disagree, but I think he's making a very, very valid argument here. It says, it is ironic, a couple quotes from his book, it is ironic that America, with its history of injustice to the poor, especially the black man and the Indian, prides itself on being a Christian nation. So he's saying, you know, we haven't acted very Christianly in these circumstances. You know, we might not want to take so much pride in the label when that uh, hasn't really reflected some of our actions, right? It says in the lynching era, in the lynching era between 1880 to 1940, white Christians lynched nearly 5,000 black men and women in a manner with obvious echoes to the Roman crucifixion of Jesus. Yet these Christians did not see the irony or contradiction of their actions. And so I guess it's a call to be careful, right? Because, not, sorry, more than that, it's a call of, of complete condemnation of the act and a repudiation of those who would call themselves Christian and participate in something like that. But it's also a call of warning to say we are not above being hypocrites, Right? to having these gross blind spots within how we practice Christianity versus how we profess it. And that we should be very, very uh, careful in how our actions are reflected in, in our faith that we profess. A couple of more quotes that I just want to talk about. I'm going to wrap up. The cross can heal and hurt. It can be empowering and liberating but also enslaving and oppressive. There is no one, there is no one way in which the cross can be interpreted. I offer my reflections because I believe that the cross placed alongside the lynching tree can help us to see Jesus and America in a new light and thereby empower people who claim to follow him to take a stand against white supremacy and every kind of injustice. And last quote, it says, unfortunately, the cross has been transformed into a harmless, non-offensive ornament that Christians wear around their necks, rather than reminding us of the cost of discipleship, has become a form of cheap grace, an easy way to salvation that doesn't force us to confront the power of Christ's message and mission. Until we can see the cross and the lynching tree together, until we can identify Christ with a Recrucified black body hanging from a lynching tree, there can be no genuine understanding of Christian identity in America and no deliverance from the brutal legacy of slavery and white supremacy. And so I think, you know, James Cone, the father of black theology and black liberation theology, really is bringing this powerful perspective and has birthed many other authors who have continue to take up that mantle and continue to investigate what that means within the context of our society. And next week, we're going to bring on uh, a guest. He's been here on the past. He's doing his PhD in Black Theodicy, which is why does God allow suffering specifically to, like, why did he allow the phenomenon of slavery in America to take place? That's not a question that that's going to have an easy answer to. And I don't even think that he's trying to offer a definitive why. I think the answer of why God would allow suffering at all is the practice of theodicy to say, why would a good God allow evil to manifest in the world? And what might be the factors that, you know, with human agency or with, you know, God, uh, uh, God's volition in this, 
How could he? Right? These are questions that people have that often place them in a crisis of faith that are very difficult to answer. And I'm not going to claim to have the answer, and he's not going to claim to have the answer, but this is uh, something that he's spending his PhD to really spend time reflecting on the possibilities and what can be said about the nature of God and the nature of this struggle, this ongoing struggle between good and evil that is here in this fallen world, and hopefully provide some answers to give us food for thought that we can walk away with, maybe with a modicum of comfort <laughs> through it all. Um, but yeah, and we're also going to be looking at some black theologians that you guys should be reading, that you guys should know about. Today, I just wanted to give you an initiation into the an introduction to James Cone and black liberation theology, the history behind it, some just examples of what it is, some examples of his thoughts. And I encourage you to go and read some of his books. Um, whether or not you agree with everything he says, there is something to be wrestled with and considered in the text. And so thank you so much for joining us today. I'd love to hear your comments, your thoughts. Was this helpful? Uh, what are some things that you hope that I clarify in the future? What are some nuances that maybe I didn't bring out that you'd appreciate? Um, I'm very willing to, to have those types of conversations. I appreciate you joining me. If you're here at the very end and you're not already a subscriber to the channel, make sure you like this and subscribe. And I really appreciate you taking the time to take this walk with me. Thank you.